The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. There's a poem by one of my favorite poets. I'm sure many of you have heard of her, Naomi Shihab Nye. But this is a poem that's maybe not as well known as some of her others that have made the rounds. It's called Valentine for Ernst Man. You can't order a poem like you order a taco. Walk up to the counter, say, I'll take two, and expect it to be handed back to you on a shiny plate. Still, I like your spirit. Anyone who says, here's my address, write me a poem, deserves something in reply, so I'll tell you a secret instead. Poems hide in the bottoms of our shoes. They are sleeping. They are the shadows drifting across the ceilings the moment before we wake up. What we have to do is live in a way that lets us find them. Once I knew a man who gave his wife two skunks for a valentine. He couldn't understand why she was crying. I thought they had such beautiful eyes. And he was serious. He was a serious man who lived in a serious way. Nothing was ugly just because the world said so. He really liked those skunks, so he reinvented them as valentines, and they became beautiful, at least to him. And the poems that he had been hide and the poems that had been hiding in the eyes of the skunks for centuries crawled out and curled up at his feet. Maybe if we reinvent our lives, maybe if we reinvent whatever our lives give give us, we find poems. Check your garage, the odd sock in your drawer, the person you almost like, but not quite, and let me know. So tonight I want to talk about our experiences of joy as both a necessary means for waking up, being free, and also joy as a fruit of walking the path, doing the practice. So both as the means and the fruit of practice. And uh, I'm guessing that many of you get this, that it's easy to forget, to misplace the importance of joy because there really is suffering And uh, there are moments when life feels unworkable and the confusion (coughs) feels personal, like I'm confused, I don't know what I'm doing. Let's just think about the last number of days or weeks or months and how many times, um, at least in moments, things felt unworkable. Like it seemed rational to give up or seemed rational to close down or seemed rational to shut our heart, close our heart to life, to whatever whatever was showing up for us. So we want to respect, you know, this tendency of our mind to believe in the difficulty and what seems 
unbearable, unworkable, as if it, not that it's not true, but as if it somehow represents a universal truth about existence. Oh, this is what it's really about. You know, and of course, this path is this path of understanding that there is stress, there is mental resistance, there is the suffering of attachment, the burden of grasping, and, this is the important part, there's a release from that grasping. There's a great sutta, maybe you've heard it, <laughs> but it, it kind of follows a predictable pattern where <clears throat> some of the young monks, not quite knowing what they're doing, uh, get themselves into a little mess. So there was this practitioner who had been uh, like a prince or a king, and then he became a monk. So he gave it all up, became a monk. And some younger monks were walking by his little kuti or a little place under a tree where he was practicing. And I heard him exclaim over and over again, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. So they thought, you know, without sort of paying attention, without checking it out, they thought, oh my God, he's lamenting his old life as a king, you know, with lots of pleasure, lots of wealth. We better go tell the Buddha. So they did. You know, say, hey, <laughs> you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and so the Buddha said, well, go ask our friend to come see me. So they tracked down this guy, Bhatia was his name, and he came to, you know, came with them to go see the Buddha. And um, is it true, Bhatia, that on going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss? And he answers, Yes, Lord. <laughs> yes, Venerable Sir. And so the Buddha says, What compelling reason do you have in mind that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to the empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaim, What bliss, what bliss. And he answers, Before, when I was a householder, maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, on going alone to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied with a mind like wild deer, this is the compelling reason I have in mind that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. And then as often is the case, at least in how these things are recorded, it, these uh, passages sometimes end with the Buddha giving a statement in verse. So the Buddha says in verse, from whose heart there is no provocation and for whom becoming and non-becoming are overcome, this one, beyond fear, blissful, with no grief, is one the devas cannot see. And, you know, this emphasis here, going to the forest, going to the root of the tree, to the wilderness, this is just 
another way of saying going to the experience of embodiment. I mean, it's our, as city dwellers, as lay people, with responsibilities, jobs, homes, our wilderness, our root of the tree, our little empty dwelling in the woods, is showing up in our body, dropping the story about my life, putting down temporarily ideas of my duties and responsibilities, the future and the past, and just being in the body. And you know how that is when you go. It's hopefully it happens for you sometimes. You get a chance to get out someplace simple, backpacking or camping or something. And um, a little bit, usually after a little bit of time, see, norm, no, the things that normally stimulate a lot of thought just aren't there. I mean, you have bushes, you have maybe a lake or a river, you have some open space, you have the sky, you have some clouds, some sunshine or moonshine or something, but you'll, you'll find that it's uh, the mind doesn't, you know, we have to kind of really work it to kind of keep that activity going. And it's the same thing about turning the attention to the breath, turning the attention to the body, learning to sustain mindful awareness with the body. Is it, oh, what bliss? In times, in moments, just the simplicity of being with the walking. I mean, it's really hellish if we feel like we need to do things, and then all we're kind of trapped in the, you know, in the physicality of lifting and placing the step, or breathing in and breathing out, or whatever sort of we're paying attention to on the retreat. But in those moments when we just wholeheartedly give ourselves to the washing of the dishes or the walking or the breathing, feeling the body, sitting, hearing. Maybe we know that, oh, what bliss. I remember early on in my practice asking Andy Olensky, uh, who some of you know is a uh, well-known Buddhist scholar about, you know, just the sense I've had right from the very beginning that in the Buddha it talks about, you know, a wise person would be willing to let go of a relatively insignificant joy in order to realize, receive a more refined, a more beautiful, a more resonant joy. So I ask Andy, you know, is it true that the practice is just a refinement of joy, just uh, uncovering a deeper, more resonant, more refined happiness one layer at a time. And, and he said yes. And then I, I recognized, or I found more recently, something Venerable Analio has said. He's another uh, Buddhist monk and Buddhist scholar who I really respect. And he said the entire scheme of the path can be envisioned as a progressive refinement of joy. Now, remember I said the title is Joy as a Means and a Fruit of Practice. So when there's a period of time, you know, not just a day or a retreat, but, you know, months at a time, and our practice doesn't seem like a continual refinement of joy, then that might be a good time to wonder, like, okay, 
Do I know what I'm doing? Do I need to chat with a Dharma friend? Do I need to reflect? Like when it seems just a grind. Or sometimes people talk about the practice as, well, you know, life is basically a setup. You know, it's unworkable. We've got the sense of self, but it doesn't really fit. So the Buddha teaches non-attachment because it works a little bit better, and then you die. And it's like, uh, because it sounds that way sometimes, like the practice is just avoiding uh, a lot of suffering. I mean, it's still kind of screwed, but you can avoid making it worse by doing the practice. But, you know, that's not how the Buddha talked about the practice. It really, you know, in the tradition, our teachers, our Dharma friends, at least in moments, those who practice well, they report back from the practice joy, release, the release, the unshakable release, a deepening trust, a deepening appreciation of ordinary things, And it's not even the ordinary things that are special. It's the the absence of there being a problem. So here are some of the synonyms of Nibbana. If you get a chance, Kendrick, one of our longtime community members, made a wonderful, this is many years ago, probably more than 10 years ago now, this mobile in the corner of the community room, maybe you notice it, it's, you kind of forget it after a while. Stop looking at it, but it's in the far southwest corner of the community room, just hanging there with the 33 synonyms of Nibbana. In case you ever forget, you can just look up there, sit in one of those comfortable chairs in the corner and look up. So, you know, there are some of the words that we already know, like the unconditioned, the deathless, the other shore, but there's some very positive-sounding words, the joyful, utter peace, the wonderful, the pure, the safe refuge, the peaceful, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, purity, freedom, the island, the shelter, the refuge. I mean, that sounds good to me. Abraham Maslow the one who talked about the hierarchy of needs, the psychologist, he says, some people have a wonderful capacity to appreciate again and again freshly and naively the basic goods of life with awe, pleasure, wonder, and even ecstasy. So do we have that capacity to see, to feel, to open to this, is it actually a stretch? Like, is it that we, we've forgotten what to open to? Or is it just not available for us? Because what's really interesting is how certain we can be. You know, I've always, this is one of the things that really strike me generally about the practice. In terms of wrong view or ignorance, the expression of arrogance like the certainty that we're screwed or the certainty that life is hard. And um, and it, it's not like that 
arrogance doesn't come with some evidence, but if when we really unpack it, we see that it's like there's uh, there's something the mind gets dependent. It's dependent on being right, even if being right is being miserable. But you know, it's got a idea. It has a description of the world that works for it, and it's like don't rock my boat. And so part of uh, bringing our practice into balance and finding more joy is we have to relax our arrogant notions we have about life and have a more fresh approach. Just, Just be open. It's not like we have to pretend that life is beautiful. We don't have to pretend that there's joy. We just have to be willing to look honestly at our experience of the body, experience of the mind, experience of the world around us. One of our American forefounders in the spiritual path, Walt Whitman, this is from Leaves of Grass and the chapter of the I guess poem, Song of the Open Road, number five. He says, or wrote, From this hour I ordain myself loosened of limits and imaginary lines, going where I list, my own master, total and absolute, listening to others, considering well what they say, pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating, gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. I inhale great draughts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. All seems beautiful to me. Can repeat over to men and women, you have done such good to me. I will do the same for you. to you. I will recruit myself and you as I go. I will scatter myself among men and women as I go. I will toss a new gladness and roughness among them. Whoever denies me it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed and shall bless me. It's interesting, um, you know, in Buddhism, not just in the 33 synonyms of Nibbana, but the Buddha talks about joy all the time. And it's really not possible to understand the practice without understanding joy because it's the basic mechanism for the awakening process is the bringing in of joy. That's what lubricates the heart and mind. That's what sort of uh, strengthens the samadhi. It's really what opens the door to freedom, not dukkha. In fact, you might remember the in the transcendental origination. So, you know, like for the Buddha to um, complete his map, he had to explain to his students 
how it is that there's this appearance of suffering without there being a self. Like the later monk uh, Buddha Gosa said, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Right? So the Buddha had to explain how that could possibly be, and he had to explain how there could be a process of awakening without anybody awakening. Right? So he has these two maps. One's called dependent co-arising or dependent origination, and then the other, which is this activity of suffering, how there can be this natural activity of suffering without a center, without a person at the center of it all. It's just nature in a little vortex that we call somebody suffering. And then he described this transcendental origination or this co-arising, this natural arising, codependent arising of liberation, how that happens without the there being a somebody to whom it happens. And so the first step of that, uh, that liberating arising, co-arising, is the connection with dukkha, suffering, which then instead of somebody responding, reacting to suffering by getting tight, beating their breasts, lamenting, screaming, oh poor me, instead of that, the person has enough space in their mind, enough understanding, and they realize that it doesn't have to be this way. So that's called faith. Like we have suffering, we're tying ourselves up in knots, we're reacting in some way to something we don't like or reacting to something we do like with craving and we notice we're getting all tight sitting there in meditation, fantasizing about how we're going to finally fix our life, sit every day, be a super-duper vegan, you know, uh, totally eliminate all structural biases in our minds and be totally free of cultural conditioning once and for all, no historic trauma, no white privilege, no nothing, you know, and just like be... And that's another way to tie ourselves up into knots. Oh, done. I've got my way. So we see that as suffering, and we see it so clearly in a moment, we realize it doesn't have to be this way. The mind doesn't need to be tying itself in knots. And so the faith leads to some joy. Like knowing there's a way is joyful. And the joy allows the mind to gather, to collect, into samadhi. Samadhi supports seeing things as they are, insight. Insight, seeing the underlying nature, the nature of embodiment, the nature of things as they are, leads to dispassion, leading to letting go, relinquishing, and awakening to nibbana, to the unconditioned. So, there's no process without the joy. This is from Ajahn uh, Pasino. He's one of the senior Western monks in the uh, Ajahn Chah forest, Thai forest tradition. And he's the abbot now of uh, Abhayagiri, has been for a long time. And this is a nice article. A Foundation for One's Practice is the name of the article. And he's talking about the Brahma-Viharas, the four beautiful emotions of kindness, appreciative joy, compassion, and equanimity. Talks about it in terms of exercising muscles that have not been used. He says, 
The whole point of the Buddhist teachings is to cultivate mental qualities in order to gain happiness of mind. And the Brahma Viharas, a prime source for creating happiness, can thus lay the foundation for the entire practice. Most of the terms the Buddha uses regarding the developing of practice are those that describe states of well-being. That's kind of nice. So, and he mentions the happiness of blamelessness. And it's interesting because, you know, when we think of ethical conduct, you know, we use the word sila, but the word, often the word the Buddha used in terms of this state is the happiness of living with this integrity around non-harming. He really talks about it as a happiness, the happiness of restraint, the happiness of renunciation. Not like a duty, oh, we have to do that. If we do that, if we sacrifice, then we'll get rewarded later, as opposed to it feels good. Like even uh, those of you who work with mindfulness of breathing, to see that putting down of what our mind would otherwise be thinking or planning or worrying about, and just connecting and sustaining awareness with the breath or with the sensations of the body sitting, to really see that as the activity of joy, like not I have to, but I get to put down the world. When's the last time you really looked forward to your hour sit or your half an hour sit? I get to put down the world. I get to put it all down. I am so happy I can put it all down. And for a while, I can practice going into the wilderness. You know, in our case, the wilderness of body as body, breath as breath, the wildness of the breath, the body, just the flow, movement of sensation, and the absence of the mind that divides things up fragments, turns things into good and bad, right and wrong, all of that that triggers the judging and everything else. And then he goes on, Ajahn Pasana goes on, he's talking more specifically about joy now. He says, Pomoja, this is one quality of joy, Pomoja means the delight that results from being free of the five hindrances that hinder meditation sensual desire, ill will, sleepiness, drowsiness, restlessness, and skeptical doubt. Pomoja also refers to the happiness that meditative states of tranquility can bring, an unalloyed kind of happiness. It's more unalloyed, I think he's meaning, it's not a happiness because what you have, it's a happiness because what's not there, right? The hindrances aren't there. It also includes the delight that arises from skillful reflection on the true nature of things. Pomoja leads to piti, joy or rapture. Piti leads to pasadi, the state, the deeper state of tranquility. When there's tranquility, sukha, happiness arises. Because of sukha, samadhi arises. Samadhi is the firm meditative state of mind. The Buddha says in many discourses that the happy mind is easily concentrated, easily unified. Remember the unification of the mind, samadhi. We often, you know, in some Vipassana circles at least, samadhi is kind of boo-hooed. But samadhi, real samadhi in the classical sense of the word, is a taste of nibbana, 
right? Because real samadhi, like if it's real samadhi as in the fourth jhana, then craving is out of the mind temporarily. There's no craving in the mind if it's bloomed into fourth jhana, like a, the deepest state of absorption, the you know, most quiet state of mind. So that's a very pure state. Like you get a, the mind gets a real taste of what the liberated mind is like because greed is temporarily not there. It's so suppressed that it's not expressing itself. Now we'll come back because its absence is, a con, it's, it's, is the result of particular conditions. And when those conditions change, concentration goes away, then the greed will re-enter the mind. But now the mind knows something it didn't know before. Oh, oh, that's the mind without greed. Because we kind of think we know what the mind is without greed, but it's basically the mind without gross levels of greed. That's what we know. And maybe you have a sense of a deeper, like the kind of stillness. This kind of stillness, this sort of quiet where there's no greed, is a mind that's has retreated even from pleasant and unpleasant. It doesn't see the world in terms of pleasant and unpleasant because that's still the world where greed exists, like the really sublime, beautiful, pleasant states. That's still not the most refined kind of happiness, the happiness of no greed. And then he ends this by saying, this little article by saying, we see that happiness brings about samadhi, whereas usually we approach it the other way around. We often think, if only I could get my meditation together, then I would be happy. Whereas it should be, how do I gain true happiness so my heart could be at ease, right? So my mind will gather. It is very important truth that the Buddha points to in this sequence of shades of happiness culminating in samadhi. So this is really useful like uh, to, to begin to understand that it's not just uh, a nice thing to do to get wiser about recognizing joy, more sophisticated about understanding the causes for joy, happiness, different expressions of happiness to show up in our, you know, in our heart. But it's literally essential for walking the path. We have to be skilled. And we've had several conversations now in, in the last two days about people learning not to do the reflexive thing, which is the attention going to where the pain is or where the hindrances are. Sometimes that's just the ticket. But usually from a place of confidence, when we're already on the defensive, when we're already feeling a little oppressed, by the difficult states of mind, it might be better to take some time right at the beginning to see how might the three wholesome attitudes of mind arise in this moment. Like what, and it's a real playful and uh, creative place in our practice. This is right when we've sat down and we've adjusted the posture, we've gotten settled. And then the question is like, Everything's on the table right now. With everything on the table, how might I bring to mind and sustain 
any or all of the three wholesome attitudes. And this is a list to really remember. So, you know, on the Eightfold Path, there's two steps to wisdom. There's three steps to the sila, the uh, integrity, ethical conduct part of the path, and three to the samadhi part of the path, right? So the two for wisdom, right view and right intention or wholesome attitudes of mind. That's the second step of the Eightfold Path. And generally, the Buddha defines right intention, right attitudes of mind, wholesome attitudes of mind as renunciation, the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go, understanding the attitude, the beautiful, joyful attitude of non-grasping, of letting go, of letting things be, of allowing. Understanding the beautiful state of kindness. Understanding the beautiful attitude of compassion. Right? So when we're sitting down, this is really worth several minutes of our time where we're feeling you know, relatively comfortable, stable. We've got this amount of time that we have, an hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And it's like the first thing that should come to mind is I'm not going to do anything with my practice without one of the right efforts, or right attitudes, rather. It's like it would be so counterproductive to undertake the practice with the opposite attitudes, you know, of attachment or ill will (laughs) or aggressiveness, controlling, you know, the opposite of compassion. Unfortunately, we do that often enough. Hopefully, we don't do it at the beginning of the the meditation. It's kind of more understandable that we'd fall into it in the middle of a set when maybe pain creeps up on us and we start to react in an unconscious way and before we know it, we're in a full-blown aversive reaction or trying to be in denial or distracted or whatever it might be. But we should hopefully at the beginning of sit be somewhat intentional in that beginner's mind, okay, What do I have faith in? Well, I have faith that these three wholesome attitudes that the Buddha talks about, I have faith that this does not set suffering in motion, that these attitudes of mind, these intentions of mind, don't set suffering in motion. So I'm going to find them. I'm going to find something, some way to relate to the present moment using these attitudes, and I'm going to go from there present moment awareness from there. And uh, if over time we've been cultivating this friendly relationship with the wildness of the body, the ungovernable nature of the body, the ambiguous nature of the body, you know, it's like can't be governed, can't be controlled, yet we're inevitably intimate with it. And if we've cultivated over time a lot of compassion, a lot of friendliness, a sense of humor, then that's a good place to find a way to bring these one of these three, all of these three attitudes to mind. Like the, you know, knowing the ungovernable nature, knowing that whatever is going to show up in the body right now has its own causes and conditions, that really supports the attitude of letting go. Like, I'm just going to have to work with whatever, however the body is right now. Like that wonderful line that I've been repeating a lot lately from Sylvia Burstein's book on the Paramis, um, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, I think it's called. 
And it's, uh, what is it? Um, Everything is always breathtakingly the only way it can be. My heart opening with compassion responds with equanimity. Or my heart opening with equanimity responds with compassion. I think that's how it goes. Everything is always, everything is always, I'm seeing something now, breathtakingly, everything is always breathtakingly the only way it can be. My heart opening with equanimity can respond with compassion. It sort of has all of them, right? The kindness, the compassion. The equanimity is really the renunciation, the non-attachment. So it's, you know, it might be useful for us to reframe the noble truths just to be able to do it in our mind from time to time so we're not stuck in this kind of depressive practice. Life is a B-I-T-C-H, practice is a B-I-T-C-H. You know, it's just like relationships are hard, aging body is hard, culture being culturally conditioned is hard to deal with. All the ignorance in the world is hard to deal with. Global warming is hard to deal with. Ticks are hard to deal with. You know, when we do go on a litany like that, doesn't it seem to make sense? Like being tight makes sense. Like I have to really work when I go out to Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat Property, where they, you know, there are ticks there. Although it didn't seem too bad this year. But um, it just seems like if I'm not paying attention, the mind unconsciously or by habit assumes that getting tight is appropriate. It should be tight. And then there's so many things that basically deliver that same message, oh, we should be tight, we should be tight. We are at, the, some of us, Ann and maybe a couple other people were at the retreat at Holy Spirit um, over Labor Day weekend, and the mosquitoes were just unbelievable. I mean, many times worse than I've ever seen them there. You walk out of your car, you step out of the car, and there were flocks of them immediately. And then they started to get inside, just and pe- although people were careful, and we had a fan blowing at the door the whole time to sort of blow out as people were coming in the door. There were just lots coming in, in bedrooms, in the Dharma Hall. And and it, it just seems like the appropriate response is to be tight, even when they're not, I mean, not just when one's buzzing around you, but just the thought that one might soon be buzzing around you. It's like, we should be defended. And it's just an interesting habit like that, that makes sense to be tight. I'm aging, I should be tight. This person may say something, I should be tight. I might think something I shouldn't be thinking. I should get tight. So to talk about the path in a different way. So some of you know that for each of the four noble truths, there are three insights. Like for the first noble truth, there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. There's a cause for suffering, for stress. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. 
there's cessation of stress, cessation of suffering. This should be realized. It has been realized. There's a path. It should be developed. It has been developed. So we can put it in the positive. There is happiness. You know, We should get right in the middle of this. I am right in the middle of this. Right? That's the first three insights. There is joy. There is happiness. Right? This is... This should be understood. This is relevant. It's, re- there's, it's relevant that there's joy in life, that there's happiness in life. I should understand that. I have understood that. And then the second set of three insights, happiness arises conditionally. It's not a mistake when it arises. arises. It has causes and conditions. These you know, causes should be developed, set in motion. They have been set in motion. The causes for happiness, the causes for joy. There should be a full resting and trusting of this happiness. Right? We should realize an unconditional trust in the happiness of the heart, the joy, the release of the heart. It has been realized, or it should be realized, it has been realized. And finally, there is a path to happiness. It should be developed. It has been developed. And so the Buddha talks about you know, these happinesses in different ways. Here's another way the Buddha talks about happiness. There's a time when one of the devas, one of the angelic beings evidently, came down to talk to the Buddha. And um, this beings, radiance, illuminated the whole of Jetavana, this uh, place, um, Anathapindika's monastery, where uh, the Buddha often stayed. So a really radiant, pure, beautiful being, right? Even supposedly, you know, as the stories go, or the tradition says, these beings would come in the middle of the night and ask for teaching. So this one asked the Buddha, Many people, many beings, celestial beings, human beings, longing for happiness, have pondered on the question of blessings. Pray tell me, what are the highest blessings? So that's sort of an interesting question to ask a wise person. What are the most beautiful things? So the Buddha gave this teaching. And um, at least in Theravada countries like Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, this is a very common protecting chant that the nuns and monks might chant at a wedding or any kind of gathering, sort of a blessing chant, empowering chant. Which is sort of interesting that remembering blessings is very protecting. Remembering what actually what actually are the causes for happiness. And it starts in very mundane ways. The Buddha is talking initially about very ordinary kind of happiness. It's not the kind that are unconditioned, but the kind that come and go, but still are beautiful. So he says, not to associate with the foolish, but to associate with the wise, and to honor those worthy of honor. This is the highest blessing. Okay, well, we can bring this to mind. I mean, everybody in this room, we have some wise friends, because we're here in this room being friendly. So... 
some of the people in this room, maybe all of us, were friends. And just knowing that we have these colleagues on the path, that's an amazing blessing. And some of you have dear, dear friends who, you know, whose practice, they're just as sincere, just as devoted, just as wise, just as loving as you are, or maybe more so. And that is a beautiful blessing to have trustworthy friends or not to have to go to work with people who are really ignorant. I mean, we all have to deal with people, we're we're that person some of the time, who's really ignorant, but it's nice not to be inundated with our own ignorance and other beings' ignorance all the time. That would be a real challenge for our practice. Because I don't know about you, but I'm still conditioned by my environment. And I tend, my more beautiful, the mind's more beautiful qualities tend to shine forth when I'm around other people who have beautiful qualities shining forth. And my less admirable qualities tend to arise, not always, but tend to arise when I'm around people with really strong aversion being expressed or strong greed or strong delusion being expressed. The second blessing to reside in a suitable locality, to have performed meritorious actions in the past, and to set oneself in the right direction. This is the highest blessing. So this is some of the same, like, can you imagine living in Aleppo right now? It would be really hard to, for the beautiful qualities of the heart to be expressed, because I'd probably be really frightened. You know, I'm not sure. I'd like to think some noble qualities would shine forth and I'd, you know, really look out for the well-being of everyone. But I'm not so sure whether I would run. I think there's a a movie. I, I just read the review somewhere. I don't remember the title of the movie, but the whole premise is something bad happens and uh, the one of the part there's a husband and wife and a child I think, and then there's like a natural disaster and in the last moment of panic, the husband runs or something like that, just this instinct to save oneself, and so then the whole and then everybody I guess survives and the whole movie is them dealing with the partner seeing this sort of base instinct. And their and their partner, um, and to kind of really get that, like when push comes to shove, you know what will sh- what will express itself in our mind. Yeah. So the fact that we aren't being tested means that we have this opportunity to develop the wholesome quality so strongly that when we are tested and we do end up in a war zone or in a really difficult moment, which we're probably going to have, at least to some degree in our lives, some of these moments, that we'll be prepared, that we'll have enough momentum, like he says, the Buddha says, the second, to have performed meritorious actions in the past. Meaning we have some momentum of goodness stored up so that it's likely to express itself. And you know, in 
Buddhist pop culture, and I think there's probably some truth to it, but who knows, and I think it's, it can easily be a cause for getting tight, but in general, in Buddhist culture, there's a real emphasis on that last moment of life before you die. Because the idea is, we see it right now, we don't have to wait till last moment, this mind moment conditions the next mind moment. So if I have a really hostile mind state going on, that hostile mind state is going to condition the next mind moment. And then that will condition the next. So we want to be developing wholesome habits so when, because it's often a confusing and maybe painful moment when we're dying, so that even then, with the confusion and the pain that might be there, the disorientation that might be there, it would be nice if a really wise, compassionate, those qualities would to, were to show up so that the next life or the next mind moment, when this mind moment has its last moment in that body, in this body rather, and then it's going to be who knows where next, that it will be conditioned by compassion or understanding or kindness, or forgiveness, or whatever, wholesome quality. And then the third, vast learning, skill, and handicrafts, well-grounded in discipline, pleasant speech. This is the highest blessing. Basically, knowing how to negotiate life without having to steal, without having to manipulate, without having to use our power to survive, you know, like, I'm bigger than you are, so give me that. To support one's mother and father, to cherish one's partner and children, to be engaged in peaceful occupations, this is the highest blessing. Some of you know this experience, and you know, people, a lot of people have pretty rough upbringings, but to be able to be part of your parents' healthy aging, to help them in the dying process, to be, to give back a little bit in balancing what they had to do to take care of you, even if their caretaking was less than perfect. I, I mean, I can tell from my own life, I can tell you from my own life, that it's a, uh, it's a very accessible feeling for me having... I never thought I'd move back to Minneapolis where my parents lived when I left. I went away to high school, actually, when I was um, young. And I I came back for a few summers, but basically I wasn't around much from sophomore year in high school on. And um, I never thought I'd come back, but just causes and conditions, I ended up coming back when I was around 30 and um, or 32. And... uh, and so I was around when my parents got old and were in the dying process. And it's every time I think about that, I mean, it wasn't perfect. I wasn't a perfect son. But I really committed to showing up and to responding and doing the best I could. And it, it feels really good to have been part of taking care of them in the you know their final years of their lives, and so that's a that's a real blessing to sort of be able to support them. 
as opposed to a burden. I hear Tom, he's mentioned in the group a lot of times and in private too, just the kind of joy and satisfaction and being able to support his mom who's in a, a caretaking facility. The next one is liberality, righteous conduct, rendering assistance to relatives, and performance of blameless deeds, right? Like generosity, serving others. This is the highest blessing. To cease and abstain from evil, right? Unwholesome actions, causes for harm. To abstain from intoxicating drinks, which increases the probability of causing harm. And diligent in performing righteous acts. Now, we normally don't like that word righteous, but you can think of acts that nobody would question, acts that everybody would acknowledge, oh yeah, that was a good thing to do. This is the highest blessing. Reverence, humility, contentment, gratitude, and the timely hearing of the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. This is the highest blessing. Patience, obedience. Now, I like to think of obedience as obedience to what we know from our own experience to be true. Can you imagine if we acted in line with what we actually know is true? Right? Like, is there anybody who's confused about the oh, poor me attitude as like not being helpful? So if we like, lived in obedience to the clarity we have, like, it doesn't help for me to spin with the oh, poor me attitude or any other, you know, so many other habits that we have. Meeting um, holy folks, wise folks, and timely discussion of the Dhamma. This is the highest blessing. Self-discipline, chastity, comprehension of the noble truths, the path, and the realization of Nibbana. This is the highest blessing. The mind that is not touched by the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. The mind that is free from sorrow, stainless and secure. This is the highest blessing. Those who have fulfilled the conditions for such blessings are victorious everywhere and attain happiness everywhere. To them, these are the highest blessings. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the the important thing is to uh, kind of shift the attitude where we're looking for what's beautiful, causes for appreciation, causes for gratitude, causes for joy with real confidence that it's here. I mean, this would be, you know, in terms of our Dharma friends, if you get together with a buddy who practices This would be a great thing to enforce with a good Dharma friend is that when you sit down after the initial chit-chat, how's your day, you know, something like that, okay, 
tell me, I really want to know, tell me how you've experienced actual joy, moments of gratitude, moments of real ease, moments of freedom, insight, liberating insight, calm. I want to hear about it. No, no, I won't accept no for an answer. I really, you know, take your time. And I'll think about it too while you're thinking about it, so I'll be ready to answer the same question. I mean, where we really enforce that with our friends, like, no, no, there's got to be moments of, I mean, if not perfect joy, relative joy. You know, where? Maybe not then, maybe now in hindsight. Oh, I guess I could have seen joy in that moment. I didn't, but I could have. Ajahn Sumedho says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or you should see, if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to be not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and impersonal nature. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, appreciative joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then one finds that one enjoys, delights in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting, you know, when I look at some of my teachers and, uh, you know, it seems surprising to see them take delight in ordinary things. Like, wait a minute, you know, that's a sense pleasure. What is the appropriate relationship, just to ordinary sense pleasures, maybe there was something about the dinner tonight you liked. So how should, like, you know, we're being awake, we're intimate, so when we're intimate with pleasure, what should that experience be? It should be pleasurable, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> that's how it is in the mo- moment. It's pleasurable. You know. So now here's another interesting question. How many times today have we felt that profound intimacy with what is pleasurable? And why is it hard for us sometimes to remember pleasure? Because, you know, if we ask each other, yeah, moments of being really present with pain, discomfort, stress, we could probably remember some things. And, you know, there's this bias in our mind, probably instinctual or genetic, um, because you can imagine... 
and I think you know um, scientists say this through evolution it, it got reinforced because people who have a critical mind who see danger focus on danger hypersensitive to danger they may be more likely to survive and reproduce and so you know it gets genetically selected but people who delight in butterflies and the uh, coolness of water and the shape of clouds and the cool evening breeze or a warm breeze on a cold day or the warm sunshine warm sunshine on a cold day or you know ordinary sense delights a hug whatever it might be doesn't mean those people maybe have less stress but not necessarily going to reproduce more right in terms of being selected over time in the evolutionary process so we have you know our practice has to be up to the challenge of dealing with this tendency to be negative and to be afraid and to keep frightening ourselves basically like around ticks and around you know when just the kinds of things that are in the news we just just seems to make sense to keep frightening ourselves around global warming or racial injustice you know just always seems to be another thing and uh it doesn't mean you know i'm like i i have to train myself to look at some of those things that i would rather turn away from but i try not to feed despair it's like so when we look at what is painful what is suffering we want to make sure the mind's in balance so it doesn't tell itself a lie and keep frightening itself there is dukkha it has a cause and there is cessation so the suffering that our heart experience isn't what it appears to be we have to keep an open mind about the world being a dismal place we have to keep an open mind and this is why joy is such an affront you know to be laughing at silly stuff to be happy to be enjoying friendship you know <laughs> sometimes when we do birthday parties at our house we uh who's ever there will have uh open uh, this book of uh Hadith's poetry just randomly there's a I forget the uh translator's name it's a great collection of translated uh Hadith poems and uh and then you just read it it's kind of like a reading a psychic reading from a book you know and just and they're really funny and and some of them are outrageous and um you know a little bit sexual some of them and but it's it's really an affront to any kind of negativity any tendency towards despair and dramatizing the heaviness in the world with a kind of arrogant certainty that this is the whole truth instead of from this perspective it looks like this it looks scary it looks hard to bear 
And from this perspective, it doesn't look that way. It's like that story many of you have heard me say many times about the 84th question, you know, where the farmer goes, sees the Buddha and complains about all of his problems. In fact, he has 83 problems about the weather and about his kids not doing their chores and the farm animals and on and on. And then the Buddha says, everybody has 83 problems. There isn't anything we can do about it. If it isn't one thing, it's another. And the farmer storms off and he stops the farmer before he's out of earshot. He says, I can't help you with your 83 problems that you were complaining about, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And then, you know, comes back. He asks, the Buddha says, the 84th problem is not liking having 83 problems. So it's the not liking the world as it is, the world that's ungovernable. This is where the joy, the freedom arises, the delight. It's in the not struggling with the 83 problems. It's not about becoming master of the universe, you know, or sort of images that we have in our movies of these amazingly competent people, you know, that are like super strong and super beautiful and super young and super smart and super good with technology and, you know, they've got speak multiple languages and, and we have a real addiction to this kind of competence. And it's the same thing like in our crowd, it may not be this sort of, you know, 007 kind of competence. It might be someone who has cultural competence and, you know, knows how, you know, to negotiate this world and be, um, kind of free of being ignorant and free of being biased and knows how to be politically correct and use the right kind of language in the right kind of situation and has done all the cool things. And But one way or another, we get addicted to this idea that I can handle suffering. I just need to be super, super competent and really never fall into the trap of aversion or greed or lust you know, i got to get really on top of the condition of this mind and then I'll be happy. Well, that turns out to be its own particular kind of hell, you know, needing to be perfect. It masquerades because competence does bring some satisfaction like I'm better than the rest of you, <laughs> you know, or there's, at least I'm better than somebody. And uh, there's some, you know, superficial satisfaction in that but of course underneath it's real hell and you got to keep sort of maintaining the idea of like perfection moving in that direction and there's this great looming fear of not being very good that taunts us so this uh, goodness it doesn't have to be far away we just have to start looking for it this is a passage I've read recently. I don't know if, how many of you heard it. It's from Gwendolyn Brooks. She's a was an African-American um, poet and writer, uh, also winner of the Pulitzer Prize from maybe about 50 years ago she was um, writing. And it's from her novel, Maud Martha. Kendrick sent me this little passage. It's beautiful. She says, and she writes, Go home to your children, she urged, to your wife or husband, She opened the trap, the mouse vanished. 
Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power and had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed. In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why, I'm good, I'm good. She ironed her aprons, her back was straight, her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. Isn't that nice? And uh, now this is accessible to us. We can let somebody in, you know, on the highway and just feel the nobility of that. We can take care of ourselves tonight. We can like make ourselves a nice cup of tea, prop ourselves up in bed, sipping our tea, reflect on the wholesomeness of our activities today, and then happily offer all the goodness of our day to our loved ones, to our parents, maybe if they've passed away. May somehow all the blessings of my day, may it somehow be a cause for happiness for my parents, whatever's next for them, for my loved ones, for my good friends, for my cat, for my friends on retreat with me, right? Like that's just like, that's such a simple good thing to do and a cause for happiness all around. Let's uh, keep this in mind as we live our life tonight and tomorrow morning and from then on. Just to be, take responsibility to be seeing, touching, relaxing with, resting in joy. So that when we're on our deathbed, at the very least we can say, I've been a very sincere student of happiness and joy. I've learned a thing or two. Wouldn't that be nice? Or another example, like if some young teen came up to you and very sincerely said, it's not easy being a teenager and I'm kind of hoping you have something to say about the causes for happiness. Can you imagine? I mean, that's how it used to be where young people would respect older folks and they would actually... Because older folks would actually know a thing or two. And it would be nice to sort of move through life so younger people look up and, or look at us and say, oh, I might ask this person about the most important thing, you know. What are the causes for happiness? Where do you find happiness? Resonant happiness, not the kind that comes and then leaves and you feel betrayed. Happiness that leaves a good taste. That's my aspiration. Let's just sit for a few seconds, let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.